Welcome to Rebuilding. This podcast is designed to help the church rebuild its walls one person at a time. For more information, check us out at www.piercepoint.org. Romans chapter 15, verses 1 through 7. These are the words of God. Now, we who are strong ought to bear the weakness of those without strength and not just please ourselves. Each one of us is to please his neighbor for his good, to his edification. For even Christ did not please himself. But, as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. Now, may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another, according to Christ Jesus, so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 7, therefore, accept one another just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. Over the past few weeks, we've been studying what uh, the Apostle Paul says, specifically in Romans chapter 14, concerning those of weak faith and those of strong faith. And I think it's important to recognize that that is a distinction in the Scripture. But it's not a distinction without hope. It's just a, a, a state or an idea of maturity. Throughout this time, we've seen that the phrase little faith in the scripture does not mean what maybe uh, is commonly taught. It does not uh, actually mean that, that you have, um, you have a, a certain measure of faith, but rather that you lack strength in an area. This is why Romans chapter 15, 1 tells us that the strong are supposed to bear with the weak those who are without strength, not those of little strength. We might say that they're not trusting God at all in an area of our life. But before we get, uh, you know, high and mighty in an idea like this and presumptuous about our own uh, status in the kingdom of God, strong or weak, we have to realize that each one of us has areas in life like this. There are areas where we're weak in faith. There's areas where we're strong in faith. Each one of us. It doesn't matter if you're a professional Christian or uh, if you're not. It is, it is a truth for all of us. In line with this, we've also learned that faith is not measured on a scale. Uh, it's not that, that everybody in the room has a level one on their faith meter and all they need to do is get to a level two so that they can hit that magic mustard seed level of faith in which all things are now available to them or all things are possible to them. Uh, these concepts, whether you know it or not, these concepts are utterly foreign to the scripture. They're not foreign to the church. They're just utterly foreign to the scripture. This has led us, particularly, to a fuller understanding of our responsibility as Christians towards one another. We are called, weak or strong, we are called to accept one another. We are called to love one another. In chapter 15, 1, the strong are said to, to uh, need to bear with the weaknesses of those without strength. So we're talking about responsibility inside of the Christian life. But please understand that this goes far beyond, bearing with the weak goes far beyond uh, merely not holding them in contempt. 
okay? It goes beyond uh, a, a, an acceptance in a general sense of the term, Romans 14, 1, accept one another. According to the world, acceptance simply means to be okay with something uh, with no parameters, no expectations, no need for transformation, no need for repentance. But acceptance, in accordance with the scripture, uh, doesn't mean this at all. It, 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 is, it is, again, something foreign to the 21st century mind. We are called to bear with one another in their weakness, sure, but for the purpose of cultivating strength. We are to build one another up in the most holy faith. What we're called to do is, is cultivate strength in every Christian life. And this has everything to do, whether you know this or not, with godly love. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 7 says this, Love bears all things. Love bears all things. What are we supposed to do? Bear with one another, which means love bears one another. Love bears all things. Today, there are four things that I want you to see um, that I believe will help us understand how we are to bear with one another and why, in fact, we are to bear with one another. Uh, I'll go over them first, and then we'll go into them in more detail. Number one is this. Uh, bearing, actually, bearing with the weak actually means something, <laughs> according to the Scripture. It's defined according to Paul. As we're going to unpack this, we're going to see our example is Jesus Christ. That's what Paul tells us. So, when we're looking at Jesus, we're actually looking to him for our cues, how he bears with us is how we ought to bear with others. If we want to know uh, what it means to bear with one another, what would Jesus do is the right question that we should ask. How did he treat us? Uh, how did he accept us? Because that's what scripture says he did. And by the way, when Jesus accepted us and when we accept one another, Romans tells us this is all to the glory of God. That's an amazing principle for us to keep in mind. So just so we're clear at the outset... And, and you need to hear me. You need to hear me very clear. Bearing with the weak is never to be construed as putting up with the weak. Do you hear me, church? Can I get an amen? Bearing with the weak is never to be construed as putting up with the weak. We are talking about building them up in strong faith. This is a lifetime journey with people. Number two, we're going to look at uh, what, what is being built up inside the weak. Now, the obvious answer, or the, at least the common sense answer, would be, well, they're weak in faith, so clearly we're building them up in faith. But the answer is deeper than that. The answer is that faith has to be rested on something. So we're actually talking about building one another up in hope. That's the answer, but I'll give you a fuller answer in just a second. Number three, how are we to build them up? What I'm getting at with this point is what is the particular tool that we're supposed to use? And the answer here, uh, as I'll give you again right up front and explain later, is it's God's word. The, the tool for building one another up is the scripture. And this is why it's so important that we don't just put our Bibles on a shelf. This is why it's so important for you to read your Bible. Not because daily Bible reading gets you into heaven. But not reading your word leaves you completely immature. It leaves you uh, unequipped or ill-equipped 
for the work that you're called to do. Now, Scripture in this context, uh, which is, I think, important, Scripture in this context would be the Old Testament. However, it's not an Old Testament that's to be read outside of the lens of Christ. Instead, this is an Old Testament that proves that Jesus actually is who he says he is. This is reading the Old Testament to see that God is faithful. This is reading the Old Testament to understand that the Christian life is what it's supposed to be, and that is to live a life pleasing and holy before God. I'm also going to deal with the pitfalls that we uh, run into quite often, frankly, uh, of not using Scripture, which happens to be the MO of the church today. We tend, to, we tend to put the Bible on the shelf and we pull out the psychology book. There's nothing necessarily wrong with psychology, but we often replace one for the other. Or we put the Bible on the shelf and we give therapy to people in some strange humanistic way. Or we put the Bible on the shelf and we pull out some sort of moralism, some sort of way that we should behave, and yet we have no relationship with the Father. So it's important that we understand we need to be using the Scripture. And then number four, I want to show you um, what all of this accomplishes. Now, I know, again, what is the, the natural idea here, and that is, well, you're talking about building up weak in faith, and so maybe it's faith, maybe it's hope, like you're talking about. But I'm actually getting to something deeper, and we'll see it in point four. I'm getting to something deeper that says, what do strong faith and what do strong hope actually result in? What is this supposed to produce in our lives? You're not, you're not supposed to just be strong in hope and strong in faith and just sit here and wait for Jesus. You're supposed to be strong in faith and strong in hope because it produces something here and now, and it produces something uh, for God as well. So number one, what does it mean to bear with one another's weakness? Let's look at a few scriptures to get our answer. John chapter 19, verse 17. If you're a note taker, write these down. You can study them a little bit later. I'm going to move pretty fast through this. But John 19, uh, verse 17. The same Greek word for bearing here is pronounced bostazo. Can you say that with me? Bostazo. And somebody literally told me no. So anyway, uh, so I don't want to talk to you anymore. So bostazo is the Greek word. And it's used in this context, in, in, um, in John chapter 19, it's used to communicate Jesus bearing the cross to Calvary. Now, this term bostazo is actually only used a handful of times in, its, in this sense, in bearing uh, something physically. The common understanding of this term, uh, to bear with in Paul's day, would have been to take a burden on your shoulders literally. Jesus carrying the cross. It's a literal burden that you're taking. Although taking up one's cross, for us, uh, means facing persecution or bearing with the afflictions that come for proclaiming the name of Jesus. In this context, it also implies, please hear me church, it implies carrying the burden of a fellow brother and sister in Christ. It means carrying the weight of their weakened faith. That's what you're carrying. And our responsibility is the responsibility of growth in that other person. Our desire is that they would grow. Our desire is that they would be built up. Now, parents, you know this probably better than anybody, at least if you were taught properly what it means to be a parent. Your job for training your children, my job for training my children, is actually to equip them and prepare them to be a force to be reckoned with in the world. I did not have kids to fulfill this weird little longing in my heart. Did they fulfill something in my heart? Absolutely. 
Absolutely. But I I had children because God told me to have children. (laughs) Be fruitful and multiply. And I love that command for lots of reasons. But I would go for more. I would go for more, but I need your help convincing Sarah. Just more and more and more. People ask me, they say, are you going till you get a boy? I have no hope of that. I have no hope of that. But I'd take a hundred more girls. It doesn't matter to me. They're amazing, amazing creatures. And I have four of them, which means I never get to use the bathroom. (laughs) The idea here, though, is that we are given children for a reason. They are arrows in the quiver of a father. They're to be shot into the world. If you are not equipping your children to go and take the gospel to the rest of the world, you're not doing it right. You're not doing it right. So when we have our children and we bear with them, how many of you know that your children are just annoying at times? I'm raising my hand for your children. Anyway, (laughs) thanks, Mark. Anyway, (laughs) he's got fully grown children. It's amazing. But our our children are burdensome at times. But guess what we're supposed to do? Bear with them. Why? Because we have a job. What's the job? To set them out into the world on the mission of the kingdom of God. That's our job. What are we supposed to do with fellow brothers and sisters? The same thing that a mom and dad are supposed to do with their children. When the going gets tough with your kids, do you you just send them packing? Don't answer that, actually, out loud. You know in your heart the answer is supposed to be no, and so you keep them. But interestingly enough, in the church, when the going gets tough, we send people packing all the time don't we? We send people packing or we just go ahead and pack up. And this is a dangerous way to live out our lives. To bear this burden the same way Christ did is to actually bear the burden of weak faith so that we can develop, we can cultivate strength in a fellow brother or sister in Christ. That's important. It's important for all of us. In Acts chapter 9, verses 15 and 16, Jesus speaking to Ananias uh, concerning the conversion of Paul. And yes, these are red letters. Yes, this is Jesus speaking to Ananias the same way he spoke to Paul on the Damascus road. And he said to Ananias, he said, He, referring to Paul, is a chosen instrument of mine to bear, bastazo, to bear my name before the Gentiles. Jesus then goes on to correlate bearing with suffering for his name. That's what it means to bear. So what does it mean to bear the name of Jesus? Well, it means to suffer. It means to suffer. But the term suffer here is not some uh, abstract pain that we endure. We're talking about patience. We're talking about long suffering. We're talking about enduring uh, through something or holding fast or standing firm, the scripture would say. Scripture says that we will, we will be known by our love for one another. How many of you know that? We will be known by our love for one another. Sometimes love is a sacrifice. Not all the time. There are times where uh, my expressions of love or my opportunities to love are a joy through and through. No sacrifice necessary. But there are times when love is a sacrifice, aren't isn't there? times when it's really, really difficult, right? Sometimes love is a sacrifice, but to love like Jesus is not always seen as a good thing. 
from us or the person receiving love. Sometimes the strong in faith, and I'm not presuming anything, but sometimes the strong in faith, if that is who you are, sometimes it's hard to love another person. And so what you're tempted to do is to hold them in contempt. This is why Paul warns against it. Don't hold them in contempt. Because loving people is hard. Anybody who's ever had toddlers understands that sometimes, no, I mean, it's funny, but it's not even necessary to be funny. The idea is that sometimes you're like, oh my goodness, how long must I put up with this? And God says, 18 years, smile. You know, in in a millennial culture, it's till they're 40. I don't know why (laughs) this is the case, right? So, so, but the idea, the, the idea here is that we bear with them. Okay, and we're supposed to bear with one another. But loving in that context, uh, it can be hard. It's, it's not always that fun. And sometimes the one that is, being, uh, that is being helped doesn't enjoy the process, do they? Sometimes you're like, nope, I'm not up for this. This is not fun for me. To bear with people means to love them. It means 1 Corinthians 13, 7, love bears all things again. In Romans 14 and 15, to suffer for the name of Jesus, it has to do with patience. It has to do with long-suffering. Paul physically suffered for the name of Jesus. But Paul also suffered mentally and emotionally for the church that he loved. How many of you know that that's, that's a part of brotherly love in the church? To suffer with each other, even mentally, even emotionally, even physically. So we're asking this question, what does it mean to bear with one another? Well, when you start to put flesh on these bones, when you start to get really practical with this, you start to swallow hard and realize most of us just need to repent. Most of us need to repent because when the going gets tough again, we get going in the church today. If we fully grasp the idea, it will have a far-reaching effect on our own sanctification. And I want to speak for a second here about husbands and wives. You know, in the scripture, it talks about a wife bearing with an unbelieving husband. Bearing with an unbelieving husband. It says that through your uh, chaste and respectful behavior, it talks about your gentle and quiet spirit. It says through that, you will win over, or you could win over your spouse. You see, that is a practical picture of bearing with the weakness of another. But that is precisely the thing nobody wants to do today in the church. Like, I can't deal with this. Well, that's what God said. I don't like this, but that's what God said. And this has far-reaching effects. Husbands, wives, children, Christians, pastors, congregants, congregants to pastors. It, It reaches everywhere. We must bear with one another. We have great stories in this church. I hope you know that. We have great stories of people who who bore with the weakness of their spouse. And now their spouse rejoices with us. It's an amazing thing. It's an amazing thing. You just keep pushing. You just keep pushing. You just keep holding that weight. That's your call in life. It might not be a glorious call. But we were told we would suffer for the name of Jesus. One of the issues in the church today, one of the problems with all the division and all the splintering and fracturing that we see is that nobody ever takes a second to think, maybe this is an issue of weak or strong faith. 
Maybe I've been told to bear with the weakness of my brother. Maybe this is actually good for my sanctification as much as it is for their sanctification. Instead, we just run down the road and start the first church of strong faith. We go down the road. We start a brand new church. It's the first church of strong faith. Notice nobody starts the first church of weak faith. <laughs> nobody has uh, uh, enough humility to actually start there. Okay, So we go down the road or we run from church to church to church to church. What are we doing? What are we doing? We're avoiding the very work that God has planned for our betterment, for our sanctification. This is what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to grow, church. Quick observation, though, on this point. Uh, we're very trigger-happy in the church today. You may not know this, but as a student of theology and, and, and church history and those things... Um, we are very trigger-happy in the church today to just label somebody with whom we disagree as a heretic. Did you know that? This is so abundant in the church today. And if you don't know it, just spend some time on YouTube and you'll find out. Okay? Everybody who disagrees with the other person is just a heretic and they, and they need to be written off. They're, they're off their rockers. They're leading people astray. So we should protect the world against them. Heresy properly understood. This is my observation. Heresy properly understood is not merely holding an unorthodox view. It's not merely holding an unorthodox view. It was a label that was given to those, even in the scripture, of those who sowed seeds of discord or caused division with their faulty view. Make no mistake, there are faulty views. That's not what I'm saying. But people who sow, seed, sow seeds of discord with faulty views are actually the proper understanding of the term heretic. Make no mistake, every Christian throughout human history at a time or two has held a weird view or two or ten. Okay, I'd recommend, if you're interested in these things, to pick up a book by Frank Viola called Regrace. And the whole point of the book is actually to show the unorthodox views of many of the people we follow. Many of the people we've trusted for a long time. He deals with reformers like Calvin and Luther. He deals with people like Charles Spurgeon and C.S. Lewis. And even, as much as you can say this with this term, moderns like Billy Graham. He, he deals with all of these people and these strange views that they have. And he shows this isn't heresy necessarily. But those who cause division, that's the proper understanding. Please hear me. Scripture does tell us that there are times to break fellowship with a person. Did you know that? But that should be, that should be done with immense caution. And a great process called church discipline <laughs> that happens beforehand. Paul tells Titus to warn a divisive person once and then a second time. And then after that, to have nothing to do with them. But who are we, who are we warning? A divisive person, not just somebody that doesn't see it our way. So back to what it means to bear with one another. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 2, bearing one another's burdens is referred to or is linked with fulfilling the law of Christ. And it is spelled out for us in one verse earlier, in verse 1. This is what it says. Brethren, even if anyone is caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. How are we supposed to restore people? With gentleness. Wow, that's really hard. 
And just so you know, we're not off subject here. Romans 14, 23 tells us that which is not done from faith is actually sin. And so what do we connect in here? That some of the trespasses we commit are the actions from weak faith. Actions that are not done out of a place of faith. But we should bear with one another inside of that weakness. In Acts chapter 15 at the Council of Jerusalem, the Judaizers and some of the Pharisees uh, were trying to persuade others that without circumcision and a strict adherence to the Mosaic law, you could not be saved. So catch the order here. It was circumcision, adherence to the law, in order to be saved. Okay, They've gotten the order really problematic. To this, Peter stands up, the Apostle Peter stands up at this council, and he says, Why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of his disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bastazo, bear? You see, church, the opposite of bearing with one another's burdens is actually offering your self-imposed religion. Offering your strict rules and, and your burdensome ideologies. Turn with me to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. Colossians 2 verse 16, Paul says this. Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Notice what he's saying here. No one is to act as your judge. What did we learn last week? Who who judges in in the story of strong versus weak faith? It's the weak in faith who judge. And so he says, no one is to act as your judge with respect to the same three things he deals with in Rome. Food, drink, and festivals. Food, drink, and festivals. Always those things. As we saw last week, this is is what the weak in faith do. But then he says this. He says, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. In other words, Jesus is the substance of all those things. He is, Jesus is, the fulfillment of all those things. In the Old Covenant, what was the point of eating that which is clean versus eating that which is unclean? What was the point? The point, among many others, was an identifier, was being an identifier for the people of God. This is the people through whom the Messiah, the salvation of the world, would come. So why did we abstain from eating certain things? Not because food is bad, and not because any food is bad. Otherwise, Paul is contradicting everything by saying, everything is clean now. The point was, it set apart a people until the Messiah would come. Did Jesus come? There you go. So dietary laws, restrictions of eating and drinking, they actually have no place Now, we're not talking about the restriction in drinking of getting drunk. This is not the MO of a Christian. Please, if this is you, stop. God says, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit of God. This is absolutely antithetical to the Christian life. We're not these people, okay? So what about festivals? Let's take Passover, for example. God was passing over the sins of Israel, those those who trusted in him. He saved them out of bondage in Egypt, didn't he? And so what is it with Jesus? What is it with Jesus in us? Through Jesus, the wrath of God passes over us because of the blood that 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 has been shown to cover us. 
Jesus passes over us. The wrath of God passes over us. We've been brought out of captivity to sin and death and into life and the spirit and holiness and righteousness. The point of all this is that Jesus is the fulfillment of all things. So back to Colossians 2.18. Paul says, let no one keep defrauding you of your prize. Who would be defrauding you? The people who say, man, you really need to adhere to this, and you really need to do that, and you really need to abstain from this kind of food, and you must celebrate this particular feast or this particular festival. No, those are those of weak faith. He says, let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels, taking his stand on visions that he has seen, inflating without cause by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the entire body, being supplied and held together by joints and ligaments, grows with the growth which is from God. Now here's what I find amazing about this. It's amazing that the weak in faith are those who delight themselves in self-abasement, the worship of angels, and stand on visions they've seen. I had a vision. I had a vision. Paul says these are the weak in faith. He says that they're inflated in their fleshly mind. And the reason why this is interesting to me is because far too often in the charismatic world today, these are the people that are viewed as having strong faith. And, the, and Paul says, no. Paul says, I don't care what you see and what you think and what you do. He says, this is self-abasement. This is the worship of things that you have no business worshiping. So according to Paul, this is a very big problem. It's the weak in faith. This flips it on its head for us in the church. Because I was raised thinking the opposite. And that is simply not what Paul says. In verse 20, he says this, If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles, so that's the very next line, if you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of this world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourselves to decrees such as... He doesn't stop at decrees, full stop, decrees such as, and here's the decrees that you have no business worrying about, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things that are destined to perish with use. He goes on, in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men, here's why this self-abasement and this problem is so clear in the church, in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men, these are matters which have... To be sure, the appearance of wisdom and self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but, here's Paul's view on those things, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. Celebrating special days, all you're doing is treating your body severely. Why? Jesus fulfilled those special days. For you abstaining from certain kinds of foods, foods, all you're doing is treating yourself severely. Why? Jesus fulfilled that requirement. All things are clean inside of Jesus. But it's amazing what we're supposed to do with those who have weak faith or do not understand those things. And that is not to sit there and say, you pee on, why don't you get it? Instead, we're supposed to say, I'll bear with you. I'll love you. I'll walk with you. I understand what you're doing. I understand the traditions that you hold to. I understand how long you've journeyed in this path. Remember, as I said a couple of weeks ago, it was the Jewish people to whom the law and the prophets came. Paul says there is much in being a Jew in every way, but Paul also shows they were the ones weak in faith because they didn't see that Jesus was the answer to all things. That's powerful. 
So where am I going with all this? In Acts 15, when the council meets, the reason the Pharisees are shot down by, a, by Apostle Peter, and the council for that matter, is because all this would serve to do is put further strictures on the free church, on the free Christian. You're just making people adhere to weird religions that Jesus said, I finished. It is finished. Stop playing the game. And yet we don't. This is what he means when he says that this is a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bastazo. We cannot bear it. So again, bearing with one another is not placing on them more burdens. It's actually loving them enough to lift those burdens. Now, two things that you need to understand in this. One is that Jesus had this very same problem with the Pharisees. He said, you heap heavy burdens on people and you won't lift a finger to help them. That's the first thing. It's not good to put burdens on people in this way. It is also important to notice that in the council in Jerusalem, they did pass this judgment. They said, don't eat food sacrificed to idols or consume blood. And you go, Nathan, that contradicts what you just said. And it absolutely does not. It confirms that Paul was gentle with the weak. Paul cannot say, don't eat food sacrificed to idols, and then to the Roman church, everything's clean. Don't worry about it. That would be a contradiction. That would be a married bachelor. You've got a problem here. It doesn't go together. But what you, what you see here is that Peter, in this, in this council meeting, is saying, this is an example of gentleness on those who have weak faith. So they pass a, a judgment that says, we'll get there. We'll get there. We're working towards what God has called us to. Bearing with one another in weakness means responsibility. It means patience. It means removing unnecessary burdens. This is growing in faith. This is sanctification. This is what God says is life. I told you at the outset that our example is Christ Jesus. Look again at Romans 15, 2 and 3. He says, each of us is to please his neighbor for his good, to his edification. For even Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Christ did not please himself when he came to earth. Who was he pleasing according to Romans 15, 2 and 3? He was pleasing the Father. The reproaches which belonged to the Father fell upon the Son. He was willing to take that reproach for the work that God had called him to. Turn to 2 Corinthians 8, 9 or write it down for your further study. Here's what Paul says there. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Who is he thinking about there? You and me. So Jesus doesn't please himself. He pleases the Father first, and he is out for your pleasing next. He is out for your life and for your growth next. This is God condescending to humanity, church. Scripture talks about him not considering equality with God a thing to be grasped, but humbling himself and coming in the form of a man to die on a cross for you and me. The person who is willing to die on a cross for another person is not thinking of themselves. You cannot be. The idea here goes all the way back to where we started in John 19, 17. Jesus was bostazo. He was bearing the cross to Calvary. If Jesus is our example and he bore the cross to Calvary, then one of the crosses we bear is the betterment of a fellow brother and sister in Christ. Instead of when the going gets tough, we get going, we stay in. 
We hold fast. We stand firm. We walk this walk together. Amen? Number two, what are we building up? What are we building up? The obvious answer uh, is that we're building up weak, in, weak faith, uh, those who are weak in faith, into strong faith. But again, our understanding of faith shows that faith is predicated on something. Romans 15, 4, read it with me. It says, For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have faith. No, it doesn't say faith. That we might have hope. Question, what is faith again? Faith is trust and that is all. Our motto still stands. That's perfectly fine. But let's flesh it out a little bit more in Hebrews 11.1. Again, faith is the substance. Faith is the substance of things that are hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. Although faith is the goal, faith has to rest on something. That's where hope comes in. Faith is a trust, but it has to have something in which to trust. As Christians, we want our brothers and sisters in Christ to share a sincere hope, don't we? We want that so that their faith is strong. We, we might not see the full view of hope in this life. As a matter of fact, Scripture would tell us we don't see the full view of hope ever. Who hopes for that which they already have? But they hope for what they do not have. Jesus hasn't returned yet, right? Or we would have missed it, right? We have not received a new heaven and a new earth, have we? Darn it. Anybody here have a glorified body? I'll answer it for you. No. <laughs> right? I sure don't. Right? No glorified bodies yet. So we're looking forward to something in the future, but we need to understand very clearly that our faith, although proof of something, must have something to prove. You're not living a holy life so that you can say, I'm doing that because I'm a good person. You're living a holy life because you're saying, my God bought me at a price. My God redeemed a sinner like me. My God made a way where I could not make a way. This is what we're teaching. This is what we're sharing with the world. You have to have something to prove. What the strong in faith need to do is communicate the story of God, the hope of our life over and over and over and over and over and over. We have to communicate that story. Why do we need to explain it so much? Because this is how faith is grown. When we see that all the story of life reaches its climax in Jesus Christ, we see what true hope is, and then we have something to rest our faith on. When we see that God has always been faithful, we have something to rest our faith on. When we see that God wants the best for us, when we see that God will not leave us hanging, when we see that God will take care of our tomorrow, what do we know? We know that our faith can grow strong because there's something for that faith, that trust to rest in. Number three, how are we building them up? Romans 15, four, for whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So faith is the substance of things hoped for, right? The place, uh, to place faith in anything, we need to know what we're hoping for, and we discover that hope through the written word of God, through the unchanging written word of God. In earlier times for our instruction, through perseverance and encouragement of the scriptures. What does Paul say in Romans? He says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by what? I thought it was by your testimony. 
Faith comes by hearing and hearing by a really good testimony because, by the way, the end of the Bible is just a comma, not a period. That might be true. Fine. I don't have a problem with it. But your testimony and your word either confirms what the Scripture says or it's just another story. And your story doesn't matter unless it points to Jesus. Your story doesn't matter unless it's an exclamation point to the cross. Right? So please don't miss this. It's not about us going out into all the world and preaching the gospel and using words if we have to. You have to speak the gospel. But it is the scripture that you are speaking. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. It's through the scriptures that we have hope and it's through sincere hope that faith is made strong. Romans 4.23 says this. Now, not for his sake, referring to Abraham, only was it written that it was credited to him, but for our sakes also to whom it will be credited as those who believe in him, that is the Father, who raised Jesus, our Lord, from the dead. Why do we have the story of Abraham, church? We're not Jews. Why do we have the story of Abraham? Because whatever was written in earlier times was written for our strengthening. He's referring to the Old Testament when he says this. Everything that was written in former times was for our strengthening. The answer to our question, how do we build everybody up in a stronger faith, is that we give them hope. That hope comes from the Word of God. That hope comes from the Word of God. But hear me. These are not stories that have some mystical power behind them. What do I mean by this? I mean that you can't read the stories of God to your children and they just serendipitously come to Jesus. It's not the way this works. You read the stories of God. You paint the picture of his faithfulness. You communicate the promise-making and promise-keeping nature of God. You do that, and then you walk by strong faith, showing them what this is all about. When they need to rest, you show them they rest on Jesus. When they need some hope, you show them where their hope is found. You don't just read them to bed at night and hope it changes everything. It doesn't work that way. You show them how this is modeled. The other day, Kate uh, got some rash. She's developing some rash. And all of our kids have weird allergies this season. It's really strange. And she had this rash developing on her cheek and on her eye. And I said, baby girl, I want to pray for you. And I didn't expect what came next. But I said, I want to pray for you. And she came over and she said, okay. And she just came over and I laid my hands on her and I was praying for her. And when she stepped back, she was just in full-blown tears. And I'm like, what's, what's happening here? I don't know, but here's my guess. It's what, what's happening. My guess is that my daughter saw that her dad trusts Jesus and she was moved by that. I don't think there was anything else going on there. I didn't pray anything flowery or nice. God... We trust you for our healing. We trust you for our restoration. Please make this okay. That's it. Nothing fancy. But my daughter was in tears. Your kids, your Christian friends, your husband or wife, they need to see you rest on Jesus. Because when they see that, they will go, wow, I know, I know there's a place to rest. I know of a place to rest. They not be, may not be strong in that yet, church. That's not the point. We bear with the weak. But we have to at least show them where we're resting, amen? This is so vital. 
Why do we have the story of Abraham? It communicates who God is. Why do we have all of the Old Testament? Why do we have all of the New Testament? Because all scripture is inspired by God and useful for teaching and reproof and correction and training and righteousness. Part of bearing with one another is to teach them, reprove them, correct them, and train them via the scripture, not your opinion. This is important. So again, the stronger to bear with the weak, this means to take up our cross. Our example is Christ Jesus, who became poor so that we could become rich. We ought to do the same for our brothers and sisters in Christ. We are to build them up in hope and consequently faith. And as we just learned, we are to build them up through the encouragement of God's word. Last observation and then a quick point four. We have got to be careful with our incessant desire in the culture to be relatable to the culture. Guys, what we're preaching will never fully be relatable to the culture. What is relatable is we're all sinners. Convincing them of that is going to be difficult. Everybody thinks they're good in today's culture. C.S. Lewis wrote uh, wrote an essay on this very thing in the 1930s in which he said, we're dealing with one of the hardest times for evangelism in his day because we're no longer trying to preach faith from faith to another faith. That is, somebody believed in some sort of ritualism or spiritualism, and now they're coming to Jesus. We're actually trying to convert the post-Christian. We're trying to convert the hardened one to faith in Jesus. Okay? We, we've got to realize we're never going to be relatable. And so he talked about the methods that are employed. And one of the most common methods that needs to be employed today is actually convincing people they're sinners. Barney told a joke. He, he completely screwed up the punchline this morning. But he told a joke. This, this little boy came home from church and his dad said, what did the preacher preach on? He said, sin. The next Sunday, the boy came home from church. What did the preacher preach on? He said, sin. The next Sunday, what the preacher preach on? Sin. He goes, okay, that's fine. Is he for it or is he against it? That's what I want to know, right? We've got to preach against sin and we've got to tell people that they are sinners. But listen, we're going to be going up against a big old wall. And that wall is, you're a judgmental Christian. As I've told you for two weeks straight, don't fall for the accusations of the world. We are not being judgmental. We are speaking the truth. They just don't like what they're hearing. Darn. It's the same way it was for all of us when we were growing up. Mom and dad told us stuff. We were like, judgmental. No, mom and dad just told us things we didn't want to hear, right? We cannot keep cowtailing to the culture. What we're to preach is the word of God. It doesn't matter what anybody thinks about it. Antiquated, old, dated, oh, we think it's contradictory, tough. We'll show you that it's true. We'll show you that it's God's word. And we'll show you that it tells the truth about who you are. A sinner that is in need of grace. Number four. So what does all of this accomplish? The answer is that it accomplishes something both for the weak and the strong. It ushers in unity and therefore glory to God. Read with me this final passage. Romans 15, 5 through 7. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another. What is that? Unity. According to Christ Jesus. So that with one accord, unity, you may be with one voice, unity. And you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Glory to God. Therefore, accept one another, unity, just as Christ also accepted us, unity with the Father, to the glory of God. 
It's unity and glorifying God. It's unity and glorifying God. Paul is emphatically clear here. I don't have to spend time elaborating on this point. We accept one another. We bear with one another's burdens just as Christ did for us. And together in that unity with one voice, we praise Jesus. That's an expression of worship right there. So I think in conclusion, I think we all know this, but God is at work in the lives of all of us. Amen, church? He's at work in your life. He's at work in my life. And guess what? Although there are times of providence, although there are times of miraculous things that can't be explained by by man, God is often at work in your life and in my life through other people. Isn't that true? And in Romans 14 and 15, the truth is that God is at work in our lives through the strong faith helping the weak. We should welcome that process. God is also at work in our sanctification if we happen to be strong in an area. He is at work in our sanctification by bearing with the weak. Because we learn what he did for all of us. He laid down his life. He humbled himself. He became a servant. He didn't come to be served. He came to serve. That's the beauty of the story of God. Church, listen to me clearly. We have a responsibility to bear with one another in our burdens or in their burdens, in our burdens. And we do this, we do this by looking just like Jesus. That's our call. Thanks so much for listening to Rebuilding from Pierce Point Community Church. We hope that today's podcast will help you become a more connected part of Christ's body. Remember to check out our website at piercepoint.org for more information.